You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. For years, it was believed that the human brain, as we age, only experiences degradation. That producing new brain cells, a process called neurogenesis, was something that just simply didn't happen, especially as we get to our senior years. More recently, we've discovered that, number one, neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change and adapt and evolve and to create new connections, literally the chemistry and also the physical structure of the brain can change, continue to change even in our senior years. And we also have the ability to create new brain cells, specifically the most data is affirming new brain cells being produced in the hippocampus or the memory center of the brain. So memory, attention, problem solving, speed at which we're thinking, all of these things are vital aspects of our experience as human beings, especially today. We want to be able to maintain these faculties and even potentially improve them as we age. So not just getting older, but getting better. And there's unfortunately these statements like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, today I've got news for you. We've got a leading neuroscientist and he's going to be sharing some data with you. I promise you it is going to change your life. He blew my mind multiple times talking about his new FDA approved treatment for conditions like attention deficit disorder that don't involve a drug. It involves the utilization of new technology. Now, is he a person who's saying that technology is the only way to improve the function of our brain? Absolutely not. He's going to enlighten you on how it's one of many very practical tools that we can utilize today to truly create a rich life and a rich experience. And again, to be able to maintain our memories, our cognitive abilities, in particular, our ability to pay attention in a society that is largely distracted due to our technology. So this episode is so powerful. And again, this is something that's going to change your life and really stick with you for years to come. So I'm really excited to share this with you. Now, when it comes to memory, attention, and other executive functions, all of these things are dependent upon chemistry. And also the chemistry that's happening in our brains is gonna be dependent on the nutrients that are available to run processes. Now, there's a particular neurotransmitter called acetylcholine that's getting a lot of attention right now because of its influence on building our memories, enhancing our ability to pay attention, and also really supporting all these other executive functions like foresight, planning, being able to make executive healthy decisions. Many of these things are predicated on acetylcholine. And today we have new research affirming a nootropic that's been utilized actually for centuries and its impact on acetylcholine. In the central nervous system, again, acetylcholine plays a major role in attention, memory, and other executive functions. While patients with Alzheimer's disease, so this is kind of a degradation of these systems, typically have low acetylcholine levels. And actually one of the common treatments is giving patients with Alzheimer's drugs in the form of inhibitors that block the enzyme that break down acetylcholine to 
effectively in some ways, but again, largely going to come along with some other side effects. But the goal of the treatment is to keep acetylcholine levels high in the brain. Well, a recent placebo-controlled study found that royal jelly, when compared to placebo, can significantly increase attention and also spatial memory. In addition to that, a study titled Royal Jelly Facilitates Restoration of the Cognitive Ability in Trimethylatin, conducted by researchers in Japan, found that royal jelly has the power to potentially stimulate neurogenesis in the memory center of the brain. Truly, truly remarkable. There are very few things discovered in nature that have that capability. And this is the basis for my favorite nootropic called Brain Fuel. And this is from the incredible folks at Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model and you're going to get 20% off store-wide, including their fantastic nootropic based on royal jelly. And in addition to that, by the way, it's not just royal jelly and their nootropic. They also have one of my other favorite things, Bacopa, and a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trial published in 2016 found that after just six weeks of use, Bacopa significantly improved speed of visual information processing, learning rate, memory consolidation, and even decreased anxiety in study participants. This is special stuff. Head over there, check them out. Beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 20% off. And by the way, they are dedicated to sustainable beekeeping and doing third-party testing for toxicants. Other companies are simply not doing that kind of work. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for 20% off. Head over there, check them out beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Love the Show by Thriving and Striving. Love how you deliver your show with relevance and always backed up with scientific knowledge. I also love your humility and love for what you do. I always look forward to your new releases. Awesome. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. That really does mean a lot. And if you have to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Dr. Adam Ghazali is the founding director of Neuroscape at the University of California, San Francisco, a professor of neurology, physiology, and psychiatry, and principal investigator of a cognitive neuroscience laboratory. He's also the chief scientific advisor and board member at Achille. Dr. Ghazali has been featured everywhere in major media from the New York Times to PBS to NPR and the list goes on and on. And he's won a plethora of well-deserved awards. And again, he's brought new technology to the market that is here to support the cognitive function of our citizens in a way that is non-invasive and also backed by a tremendous amount of science. So get locked in and learn about how to improve your cognitive function with Dr. Adam Ghazali. Adam, it's so good to see you. Thank you for coming down to hang out with us. Really excited about this conversation. Our attention is obviously incredibly valuable today. It's one of the most valuable assets we have as human beings. And it also determines our success in life, our accomplishments. We need to be able to point our attention at what we want. My question for you to start is what's happening to our attention span? You being a neuroscientist, in this age of digital distraction, what's happening to our attention? 
Great question. You know, I, I'm going to start by just echoing what you said, because it's so important. I think it's good for us both to say it. Attention, I would say, is our most valuable asset as human beings. Um, I'll go so far as to say that, because without having the ability to direct our limited resources where you want them in space and time, you can't function. All the other things that we do, that our brains do, like remember things, like make decisions, feel emotions, uh, are all dependent on attention. Attention dictates all the other cognitive functions and therefore everything we do in our lives. So it is just ground zero for being uh, a functional human being. And it is now becoming increasingly clear that this world of technology that we created which I love. I like to preface that. You know, I'm not like some someone that shuns technology. I have it all, just like everyone else. Um, it has created some very unique challenges for us, largely because the, our brains that evolved in a certain environment to accomplish certain goals, like surviving, um, is just very different right now. And so there are elements of our technology um, access and how the rewards are delivered and even how information is delivered in certain packets and how they compete in multitasking that fragments our attention ability and places demands that we never had before. And it has a demonstrable impact on our functioning and our happiness and our performance and our health. And uh, it's uh, it's not going away. So yeah, it's here to stay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, one of the things that really jumped out in studying your work is it really hit me how quickly, how short of a time span this happened. Like you mentioned, yeah. we had our, bra our brain really evolved to certain conditions for so long, and then suddenly now we have all of this access. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good point. It it was slow in some ways because you know we needed to have computers for what we're experiencing now, and that took a long time to really refine. And then they needed to be shrunk down. They needed to be have the batteries that could sustain them, and you know all the tech, technological advances that went into you know these pivotal moments where everything changes. And I think the pivotal moment that really led to the biggest impact on our attention is the accessibility to high power technology and the um, the connections that it has with the outside world. That just shifted everything. And so, yeah, so it was slow, but then dramatic. Um, and we're, you know, quite aware right now that it's, it's, you know, it's having its reverberations. You know, it's pretty cool in one aspect, obviously. We could be sitting in this room, but then be anywhere on Earth. Matter of fact, we don't even have to be on Earth, mm -hmm. right, through this device. And we were talking before the show I'm a big fan of the movie Cyborg growing mm -hmm. up, like mm -hmm. Bloodsport, mm -hmm. all these like, you know, mm -hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger mm -hmm. and Jean-Claude Van Damme mm -hmm. movies. But in Cyborg, when I watched it, I just really thought like, could I be that? You know, like, could I be melded with technology? And in many ways, we are already cyborgs. Yeah, 100%. You know, people use this term brain-computer interface, and they're usually referring to implantable electrodes in the brain so that there's a direct interface. But the term is actually more general than that. And you know, a brain computer interface is your screen on your on your phone, right? That's an interface between your brain and the computer. And these interfaces are increasing and 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 penetrating our lives, whether you put pods in your ears that are you know connected to your device. And so as we 
increase these connections, even without having surgery, um, these are brain-computer interfaces that in many ways create dependencies and, and in some ways turn us into cyborgs already. Yeah, and just having that access to almost an infinite amount of information, mm -hmm. literally at our fingertips, mm -hmm. like, it, it, it has presented itself in a different way mm -hmm. than I think we would have expected, you know, when we have these kind of uh, big ideas of somebody being a cyborg or, you know, mm -hmm. the Terminator and that kind of thing. But truly, it's like an extension of us. And for some people, like you just said, it can create this kind of connection or even addiction mm -hmm. where the phone is like a part of them and they can't be far from it. Like mm -hmm. one of the studies I saw recently is like 70% of people have their phone within arm's reach Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the removal of that creates a lot of anxiety. Um, and people are not um, comfortable being disconnected, even for short periods of time. Um, and I would say that to have, maybe this is a value, but it's certainly my value, that to have a, a rich um, life, being disconnected from technology is really important. Being able to have a conversation with another person, uh, without these distractions, being able to be in nature, being able to be physical in the world um, is really critical. And although I'm someone that creates technology and believe that technology is great promise to help us, um, being disconnected is also really, really important. This is why you're here, because we can find a happy medium, you know, because both of us, same thing, we wouldn't be even connecting with all the people we're connecting with right now without these incredible advancements. And we don't want to lose ourselves and our essence and what really contributes to health as a human being. And I want to ask you about this in particular. With the increased access with so many different things that we could put our attention on and or uh, involve ourselves with, what's the difference between multitasking mm. and single tasking? Yeah, that's a, a question that I have worked on for well over a decade and um, it, it really caught my interest as like 15 years ago as the term multitasking started to become more and more common as our devices started to allow more multiple screens and switching and I was like what is this whole multitasking thing and how do our brains really engage in it and so I've done a lot of research uh, now this is over a decade ago before some of the work that I've done more recently with video games and other technologies but what, uh, what we now understand as a scientific community is that when we are single tasking, uh, we are activating networks in the brain that allow us to focus our resources on that, you know, to some varying degree of effectiveness, depending on the person, and resist distraction. A lot of what our brain is doing when we're single tasking is filtering. Um, there's so much information around us. If you, if you did not filter, you would be incapacitated which is attention, essentially attention, uh, going back to how we started our conversation. So single tasking is the focusing of attention on one goal at a time. And the data would show again and again that it is the most effective way to produce the highest level performance because it has all your resources. Multitasking is when we make the decision to split our attention, either to move it rapidly between things or to try to do two things simultaneously. Um, what we learned um, over the years, my lab as well as others, is that in the brain, what's happening is that there is a switching that's occurring, even if you think you're doing them both at the same time. If they are attention demanding, you're unable to 
parallel process them. And therefore, with each switch of those attention networks, there is a degradation, loss of some information, and that presents itself in all sorts of ways. Um, and so performance is degraded when you're dividing it across two tasks. And so that's on the behavioral side. On the neural side, we see why that is. It's just how the brain works. It doesn't split that level of processing. It's fascinating. So my question would be, why do some people feel like attracted or even addicted to multitasking? Yeah. So couple of reasons, I believe. First is that it would make sense that if you were actually able to divide your resources, it would be more effective, right? So if you don't realize these limitations, you know, awareness is always key to being healthy or even changing your performance like, or your health. Like before we knew that walking was good, maybe people weren't as inclined to or sun exposure or anything. And if you don't know that your brain is limited in doing this, you'd be like, well, I have five things to do. I might as well just do them at the same time, right? So um, it makes sense that if we were capable, it would be very efficient of doing it. There's also a uh, reward to novelty. And so moving gives you novelty, right? So you're like, ooh, that's new, that's new, that's new. It feels good. And, uh, you know, it's part of our ancient brains uh, that we are rewarded for novelty. It keeps us moving. It keeps us exploring the world. And so I would say that if you look over a period of time, multitasking is probably more fun than single tasking that same amount of time. So, you know, if A, you think it's good for your performance, and you just start paying attention to how you feel, you're going to keep doing it. But if you understand the brain and the data and realize that those rewards are are really not serving your higher goal of being actually effective, then, then it's not a good thing. It's kind of like a sleight of hand that's happening. Yeah. And, you know, our brains have so many of them. You know, our, our whole reality is really perception that's uh, presented to us by the brain. And some of it is very close to reality and some of it is not. And so you might have a misperception that this is something that is working for you. And, and, and it often does until it doesn't like driving your car and checking your text messages. Like many times driving your car is a fairly automated task. You're on the highway, nothing's going on. When you pull out your phone and you're doing something on it, your attention is seriously divided and it might be fine. But if something changes on the road, your attention has to switch back and there is a time delay and a cost to that. And that difference could account for an accident. Wow. Yeah. You know, we are unknowingly creating these little mini accidents in our lives. You know, just basically it reminds me of a study. This was published in The Lancet. They did a study on physicians mm. and they had them to come in and complete a task, a simulated operation, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And then they sleep deprived them mm -hmm. for just 24 hours, which is not abnormal, mm -hmm. and had them to complete the same task. And after they compiled the data, they made 20% more mistakes mm -hmm. doing the same thing. Yeah. And it took them 14% longer to do the same thing. Yeah. And so again, it's just this, this illusion, like I'm getting, I'm up more, I'm yeah. getting more done. Yeah versus losing efficiency and effectiveness and also making a mess that I would then have to come clean up. Yeah, it's it's a really good example and it's very I agree it's a very analogous thing that you think that you're more efficient cuz you're awake for longer time. I remember when it used to be and maybe this has not even changed completely that if you're like I need to take a nap that you're somehow weak. 
um, you need a break. <laughs> you need a break in the middle. Seriously, you can't work for eight straight hours. What's wrong with you? But like a professional athlete, they know that they need a break. Like everyone training, um, you know, it's well built into that world. That part of advancing is restoration and reengaging. But in other walks of life, we we have this illusion that we have unlimited cognitive reserves. Like we don't fatigue. Like we don't need to restore. That's not true. Um, so I think there's actually a lot of lessons from the world of physical fitness that we could apply to cognitive fitness and performance, and just haven't done that. Um, so it's not a sign of weakness. Again, it's an illusion that that somehow uh, it's it's weak or or ineffective to take breaks. In the long run, it's probably more effective. Hmm. Now, looking at this concept of multitasking versus single tasking, so we talked a little bit about how multitasking can be so attractive for the brain. Is there some kind of ways or some changes that happen with our physiology with our brain that can make single tasking attractive for sure uh, this is this is a conversation that i love having and, and a lot of people don't ask me about it so i'm glad that you did i i, I think again i'm going to make a physical fitness analogy here okay um running right if you start running it's pretty darn unpleasant right like your body's not used to it it could be boring especially you know if you're not plugged in at the time um you have a limited endurance so you're not really getting the reward and so i would say like training for a marathon you're doing a lot of essentially single tasking and it takes time in order for it to actually become fun in order for you to change that you're like i love that i could just run for miles for hours and it feels good um, you had to adapt your body to be able to engage in that single task in a way that it was rewarding. And I would say the same thing is true for all single tasking. Like if you are going to write an article um, or, you know, something that demands a high focus, anything, you could think about it, any job that you're in. I would even go so far as to say have a conversation with a significant other. At the beginning of trying to do that and not allow yourself to be interrupted it's going to be anxiety provoking, especially if you're used to switching all the time. You're going to want to move and you may have to baby step into it, like training for a race, like do a little bit, do a little bit more, do a little bit more. But if you get over the hurdle, single tasking could be incredibly gratifying, not just in terms of what you could produce, which would be greater than multitasking, but it starts having its own sort of rewards that presents itself once you get over that hurdle, like running a long distance. Oh, I just, I wish people could feel that, you know, like to be able to bottle that up in a sense and give that to people because it really is, it's one of the most rewarding things, especially today, Yeah. because we're able to create things of real substance as well. You 100%. Know? I was just with a friend of mine in NorCal, Mark Bell, mm -hmm. and he's like, he set a world record for squats and things like, like squat over a thousand pounds, like all this kind of crazy superhuman stuff. And, uh, but that was years ago. Most recently, he just ran the Boston Marathon. Mm. And when he squatted all that weight, he was much heavier. He was a really, really big mm -hmm. guy. And uh, he needed that just to stand under that bar, mm -hmm. you know. But now he's shifted and he's found another passion. And it, for him, of course, it's kind of like even when you just said the R word, when you said running, it's just like, ugh, yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. But then the people that are about that life, and that's what he was, he's just like, I couldn't see myself when people would talk about loving the running and yeah. just like getting all this fulfillment from it he's like it's so weird when i went to see him he had just come back from running a few miles just yeah. like because he couldn't run his nine that he was planning on right. that day because he had to you know come in and do some stuff with me 
And it's just like, truly there is this fulfillment when you invest in a thing that yes. might seem arduous or tough up front, yeah. suddenly it clicks in and you have this heightened level of joy and yeah. fulfillment that yeah. we don't get access to when we're constantly distracted. 100%. And it takes dedication and it takes a commitment to the outcome to get there because it's not automatic. You don't automatically like running. You don't automatically like working for a continuous hour without checking your social media every 10 minutes. It's not going to feel as good. So you have to commit to it, understand why that's important, and then baby step into it and create new habits around it. Um, and if you can accomplish that, the rewards are massive, but it takes time. Another thing that just popped up for me in talking about this is when you have that kind of focused attention, single focused, single tasking, mm -hmm. you have more easily accessible this flow state you yes. know being able to lock in that too. i was gonna actually go there um but because we're in flow yeah exactly right? exactly right? no it's true <laughs> um flow is such an interesting concept and you know there are the obvious examples of surfers and you know even people playing video games but you can reach flow through a lot of different activities if you engage in it deeply enough and allow yourself to be swept away in it time loses its same perspective perspective and um yeah you know and that's that's i think one of the main goals that i certainly have personally is to achieve you know that flow state and all sorts of things interacting with with my daughter right so that you know how long can i go before i want to check my phone like i feel the tug like i'm like everyone else i have all the you know the access and i set a goal that i want to be present and it's a obvious goal it seems like for any parent um but it's not easy and again if you do it enough and you just resist all those distractions you could get into a flow just like you know just like that with uh that's all you know just as powerful as it, someone might have like being an athlete just even interacting with a child yeah and that that change in our experience or the neurochemistry that's another attractive aspect of mm -hmm. that single Mm-hmm. Tasking. Yeah. Right. So because again, you said it, it's just like there's something so attractive to our brain about novelty. Undoubtedly. Right. And so like social media apps are just uh, designed for that. One hundred percent. So what can bring you something of equal or greater value is like when you experience a flow state. Yeah. You know, it's like something man, it's just like it's very difficult to even yeah. describe. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I think that, that I, I love this conversation. It's something that it's very personal to me because I brought it into my own life intentionally and know how hard it is. Like it's, you know, I, I don't feel preachy, like just do this. It's, it's hard. Yeah. You have to really get why you want to do it and commit to doing it because else you'll just snap right back into that other way of life. Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's so good. So with this being said, you know, we are well aware. We, we of course, we could see it <clears throat> in the external world, but with more and more data is affirming this. And you know, talking to some of the leading people in uh, psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, there is definitely, it's not just we have better testing, but mm -hmm. there has been a reduction in our ability to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And in particular with children mm -hmm. and rates of ADD, mm -hmm. ADHD mm -hmm. have exploded. They've gone mm -hmm. up precipitously. Mm -hmm. While again, it's just like, oh, we're, it just wasn't diagnosed earlier. No, no, the rates mm -hmm. have gone up. Mm -hmm. And it just makes sense because our environment has changed so mm -hmm. much. 
and that's okay. Like we can acknowledge that that is a thing. Mm -hmm. But if we don't acknowledge it, you said it, you said it earlier, you said awareness. Mm -hmm. Awareness is like that domino. 100%. And so being that we're in this situation and our solutions, and this is the most important part, our solutions for treating this growing issue have not been very effective. Mm -hmm. Let's just mm -hmm. call it what it is. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have solutions, great. Oftentimes this is a pharmaceutical model, mm -hmm. but the rates are still going up and mm -hmm. the long-term effectiveness is questionable mm -hmm. at best. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, you've been at work for years putting something together that is so exciting and it's recently approved by the FDA, which is remarkable in of itself, which I wanna talk, have a conversation about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But can you talk about your work with video games mm -hmm and being an approved treatment now mm -hmm. for attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very, very happy to talk about this. I, I wanna do a quick transition piece because I've experienced this before where we just talked about the challenges of technology. And now we're gonna go into a deep dive about a very particular type of technology called video games <laughs> and show that they could have benefits on the mind. And I like to transition between them with recognition of the fact that all tools, from fire uh, to the wheel to everything, to nuclear uh, power, uh, everything cuts both ways and has the potential to do harm or good. Drugs could save you or kill you. Fire could light your house on fire, burn it down, or cook your food. And the same is true for technology. So the things that we talked about, the challenge of technology are very, very real, but it does not imply that technology can't, with, in, with the right intentions and the right design, uh, be used to help us. And that's sort of like what was like a big transition in my life after years and years of re reading and writing and, and doing research about uh, the challenges of technology to say, I think technology has great potential to do really wonderful things for us as humans. And we have to understand how to unlock that and then do the research to know that it actually does do that. And so that's where I could be someone that writes a book called The Distracted Mind and also build video games for ADD. It's very confusing to people. So that's why, because the sword slices both directions and both are true. It's just how you intentionally engage with your tools that decides which way they go. So that's like the high level that I do like to make clear. And I think it makes it a little bit more understandable. One other piece that I, I think is really useful in this transition is that our brains really um, respond um, through a process called neuroplasticity that probably many of your, your listeners are familiar with, the ability of the brain to change itself at every level, chemistry, its, its structure, its physiology, all changes um, in response to experience. Mm. Experience drives plasticity. It's the entire basis of learning in the brain. And we often thought uh, for a long time that plasticity ended after critical stages of development and then you just decline. We know that's not true. The older brain has a lot of potential for plasticity and growth as well. So it was really this foundation in neuroscience and my desire to see technology used for benefit that sort of collided um, around 15 years ago. I'm thinking about how we might use technology as a tool to help our attention, where it has f very frequently diminished our attention. And the gateway to that is that technology can create experiences and experiences drive brain plasticity. So that's the general 
but the devil's in the details. There's lots of bad experiences and good experiences, just like we've been talking, things go in both directions. So 15 years ago, I had um, those ideas converged, as well as I'm, I'm a neurologist. I don't see patients now, but I did for many, many years, largely patients with Alzheimer's disease. And I, like many other physicians, psychiatrists, um, and other neurologists, have a lot of frustration with our model of thinking that somewhere out there, there is this magic brain pill that's going to fix it. We just want to find it. We'll find it, but, but we haven't yet. And we haven't. And it's been 70 years. And we have, as you really eloquently described, we have these treatments, but they're not really what we're looking for. They don't work for many people. They have potential side effects. They have actual side effects. And we see the rates increase. And it's not just ADHD, depression and anxiety, um, suicide, uh, dementia, all going up. You know, we've seen a drop in cardiac disease and in, despite a pandemic, infectious disease. Um, and we've seen the reversed trend occur, occur for afflictions of the mind. So we have to do better. And the idea that we could use technology to create targeted, personalized experiences that challenge us in such a way that they harness the brain's plasticity to change itself and lead to a higher performing machine is what attracted me. And that's sort of the basis of what I've been doing for 15 years. So I just like to say that before I dive into video games because video games, like they have a lot of weight, just like psychedelics do and lots of things. Like there's a lot of like preconceptions based on your own personal experience or what you read or, you know, what your experience of your children are. And, and, and not to say that any of them aren't valid, but I do want to point out that video games are a type of experience delivered by technology, usually designed to be fun and engaging, and they certainly could have their own troubles associated with them. But if you want to use technology to deliver an experience to people, doing it in a way that's fun and engaging so that they're deeply immersed in the moment and that they come back and again and again, seemed like a really good idea to me. And so that's a little bit of, of the sort of background of why I started building video games uh, 15 years ago, uh, because I felt that this is a way of taking technology, flipping it around, designing it intentionally, and then doing the research to show that we could create video games that actually improve attention. Wonderful. I love this segue, <laughs> by the way. Thank you for that setup. This is fantastic. And the little pause moment in between these two parts is I told my youngest son, Brayden, who's about to turn 12 next week or this weekend, actually, that I was interviewing you and you had built video games that can actually help to improve folks who are dealing with ADHD and, and, and ADD. Yeah. And he was like, see, I told you that. I told you video games are good for you, you know, yeah. right? And, you know, I was just like, well, so pump your brakes. You know, there's a certain type of video game and certain research has gone into building this. Yes. So I'll tell you more about it once yes. I talk to this yes. brilliant thinker. <laughs> All right. So what is the basis behind what you've built. Can yeah. you talk about like, how is this similar and or different from yeah. general video games out there? Great, so in a lot of ways it's very similar, right? So, um, and, and it's also worth pausing and noting that video games, even entertainment video games, even some of the most controversial games like first person shooters have data, lots of data, showing that they could have benefits on cognition. Um, so, you know, they're a high level experience full of lots of rewards, lots of challenges. Kids that play them might suffer in other ways, you know, but you t take to give them some cognitive tests and they're like far exceeding their peers that aren't playing video games. Data has shown that. Um, but abuse them, 
through overuse and they misplace other important things in your life. And now those couple of advantages aren't worth it anymore. So like everything has overabuse as an issue and video games certainly have that. Um, so in some ways it's similar to other video games. As a matter of fact, my one of my main goals was to make it feel like a video game, not like medicine. Um, bring on the high levels of art, music, story that really engage people in the video game experience because I think that has a lot of value. But there are a lot of differences. So noting that video games could have benefits on cognition was really inspiring to me because they're not built for that reason. So let's say we built them for that reason. What would we do? That was like the challenge, right? So you can create a game where the mechanics, the interactions, the rewards, the challenges are specifically designed using an understanding of neural networks and cognitive systems that they're challenging you in a very particular type of way to really push those networks and, and, and those operations. Um, and it happens accidentally in video games, but you could design a game where that's this entire goal of those mechanics. And then obviously building the fun and the reward cycles around it. So that's one thing that makes this particular video game that's an ADHD treatment, very different. And also I have another dozen games that I've built with my team at UCSF that are still like in the lab. They're not quite out there like Endeavor is. Uh, but they're all the same. They all use very particular mechanics to challenge the brain in a very targeted way. That's one thing. The other thing is that they're all closed loop video games. So what does that mean? Closed loop is where the input into the game let's say it's your performance metrics, it can also be other types of data, are then driving the environment, the challenges, the reward, and the stimuli that you're receiving. So let me break that down a little bit. So that creates a closed loop between your brain and the processor. And what that means is that you are engaging with an environment, so picture a video game environment, where the elements in the game, the challenges and the rewards are personalized to you every second to your own abilities. And what the closed loop does is it creates a way of challenging someone right at the threshold of their ability all the time so that they don't just give up because it's too hard or it's too easy. And it pushes them constantly. Picture, again, physical fitness um, analogy, which I love. Picture like having a cyborg personal trainer, someone that had infinite access to your data, to your performance levels, to your fatigue at all moments, and then was constantly adjusting your challenges to keep you right at that edge the whole time. If you just had a bad day, you were extra fatigued, it would just back down a little bit, give you some room so that you didn't give up, and then push again at the minute you were able to bring on those reserves. Mm. That's what these games do. They have a closed loop system that they really harness the plasticity of the brain by challenging it right at that edge all the time. And so these are some elements that, you know, take take years and years to develop in the video game because you want to keep the fun, but you want to have the engine deliver the mechanics and the closed loop system in just the perfect way to change the brain in the way that you want to. And then we do years of research to determine that it actually does that. So, which is not true of most games. So those are the components that make it different. Um, if you just picked up an iPad or an iPhone and played one of our games, you wouldn't know that necessarily. It would feel like a game, which is what we want. But that's what's under the hood. And that's what takes decades to develop.
Oh, it's so fascinating. <laughs> and it just, again, it makes sense. It makes so much sense, especially if attention is the thing that we're targeting here. Exactly. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. The human brain is the most powerful pharmacy in the universe. And I'm saying that because every single thought that we think creates correlating chemistry in our bodies. And that biochemistry is designed uniquely for you. It's beyond bioidentical hormones or bioidentical neurotransmitters. These are designed specifically for your own receptor sites. So what you're making within your own body based on your thoughts, your perception of reality is of the utmost importance. And obviously thoughts of stress and anxiety and worry and fear, these are gonna create cascades that make us feel a certain way. The same with more positive and affirmative feelings and thoughts of joy, of love, of connection. But all of our emotions matter. Now, the thing is, if we're talking about health and longevity, we wanna make sure that we're stacking conditions to have more positive, affirmative thoughts and buffer us from the stressful thoughts that we are inevitably going to have. Now, our sleep hygiene, our movement practices, and also our nutrition are of the utmost importance in helping to modulate these things. And when it comes to managing stress, there is one particular story T that has been utilized for thousands of years that stands head and shoulders above the rest. A study published in Biomedical Research found that test subjects with a variety of health complaints, including anxiety and poor sleep quality, were given lion's mane medicinal mushroom or a placebo for four weeks to monitor their metabolic and psychological impact. The participants who utilized lion's mane had significantly reduced levels of anxiety and irritation than those in the placebo group. The researchers stated, quote, our results show that lion's mane intake has the possibility to reduce depression and anxiety, unquote. Not only that, scientists at the University of Malaya discovered that compounds in lion's mane are able to significantly improve the activity of a nerve growth factor in the brain. Nerve growth factor is essential in the regulation of growth, maintenance, proliferation, and survival of various brain cells. If we want to have a healthy brain and protect our brain cells, which we don't have the regenerative activity of brain cells like we do other cells in our bodies, we've got to take care of our brain cells. This is one of the few things ever discovered that has that protective capacity. For me and my family, we wanna make sure that the medicinal mushrooms that we're utilizing, lion's mane, chaga, reishi, and the like, are all done via a dual extraction to make sure that we're getting these bioactive compounds in a more full fashion. So via a hot water extract and an alcohol extract, there's one company that's doing that and infusing these incredible medicinal mushrooms into things like organic coffee, organic hot cocoa, and I'm talking about the folks at Four Sigmatic. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model and get 10% off store-wide of all of their incredible medicinal mushroom elixirs, cocos, and their organic coffee blends as well. Today, I actually had the Lion's Mane and Chaga organic coffee blend. This is one of those things, of course, it puts you on 10, but it helps you to modulate and manage your energy. It's not one of those things where you get this jolt of energy and then it leaves you lagging later on. It's very steady, mild-mannered behavior, and also helping to really activate the cognitive function that we're looking at. We're talking about things like lion's mane medicinal mushroom. You can get 10% off store-wide, plus more. They've got some incredible packages that you've got to check out and specials over at foursigmatic.com forward slash model. Go to F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model for 10% off store-wide and more. And now back to the show. So 
I've heard you say this multiple times already that this appears to be targeting systems in the mm -hmm. brain yes. versus a pharmaceutical model that doesn't necessarily target a system, but more so like an isolated neurotransmitter, for example. Exactly. Yeah, let, let me break that down. It's a really, really good point, and um, we could have easily brushed over it. But when you take a molecule, which is, we could call it a pill, we could call it a drug, it's all the same thing. You take a molecule, those molecules are usually, almost all the time, affecting neurotransmitter systems, either activating them or inhibiting them in the brain. And they do have outcomes, like you take Adderall or antidepressant, anything, it'll, it'll have an outcome, usually one that you notice. The problem is, is that these neurotransmitter systems are widely distributed throughout the brain. They do lots of different things in different places. You're essentially hitting your brain with a sledgehammer. There's no target selectivity outside of that receptor system. And that creates effects and then something that we call side effects. Right. Side effects are just other effects, right? right? They're just, you're calling them side effects because they're outside of, of your goals, but they're really just other effects. And they exist because of the lack of specificity and targeting. There is no way to activate the underlying computational unit of how the brain works, which is the neural network that I know of other than having an experience. We have no drug to do it. We have no brain stimulation to do it. The way our brain activates networks is through interactions and experience. That's how the brain evolved. So we're just sort of using the basic hardware and software of the brain as it evolved um, in its most natural way, is that if you want to target improvement in a certain function, activate the network selectively. We don't have a drug to do that, but we have experiences that, that can do that. So I hope that helps really dive into that point because it's really critical difference between molecular medicine and what I'm describing here is what I call experiential medicine. Now, this is, this is like a huge through line for this conversation is that we ignore, unfortunately, the fact that experience is what is changing the brain. Mm -hmm. And like you said, we can come in with a blunt instrument, but is this actually addressing why the brain has wired the way that it has in the first place, mm -hmm. right? Which is gonna be based on experience. Exactly. And so, like you said, having receptor sites for something like serotonin, by the way, we'll put up a study for everybody, this huge meta-analysis looking at the serotonin theory hypothesis mm -hmm. of depression and it being disproven decades ago, mm -hmm. essentially, but recently researchers have kind of unearthed the data and just kind of like, cause it just keeps getting looked past. Not to say that manipulating serotonin isn't effective for treating some things, right? but it's this, like you just said, this is a full body potential. There's receptor sites in the gut, the brain, all this stuff. And all across the brain. Are we actually looking at addressing the specific systems yes. that are influencing our mood and behavior and things like that? Exactly. Like the idea, I, just to riff off of what you're saying, the idea that there's just a chemical imbalance that needs to be adjusted that's too naive. That's just not how it works, right? It's not just like, I need a little, just a little bit more of this and then I'm fine. That, it's just, it's not how it works. It's a much more complex, dynamic, interactive system than it just needs a little more gas, right? Or, you know, a little more serotonin. It's just not how it works. Yeah, and it never made sense to me. And, you know, fortunately, again, having access to incredible thinkers and, you know, mentors like um, one of my friends, Dr. Daniel Amen, mm -hmm. is doing all these um, brain imaging and just, again, that chemical imbalance being based on a conversation, like are we actually 
analyzing your chemicals? Are we looking at what's happening in your brain? And of course we can have patterns of behavior that we then diagnose mm -hmm. and you know, and all of these are great tools, but what if we have something that is truly like minimally invasive mm -hmm. and effective, mm -hmm. right? Backed up by data and versus the side, which you said it earlier, mm -hmm. this this label of side effect is really a direct effect, mm -hmm. right? We Their just, it's, I love this so much with like, these are just effects that are different from what you thought. Exactly. These are, they're all effects right. that have side effects essentially yeah. that are not just improving attention, but other improvements in your cognitive function yeah. potentially, and being able to access a flow state potentially. Yeah. Like there is good side effects with this form of a yeah. treatment. Yeah. And my question being yeah. to, to transition into that, getting this treatment approved by the FDA, this has never been done before. This is yeah. groundbreaking. Yeah, first time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it's been a long journey. So this idea of a video game to improve attention started in my mind in 2008, um, and then was uh, something that we built into a game called Neuracer. I'll, I'll quickly go through the 15 year story. And that uh, became a research study that we published in Nature. It was the cover of Nature, very exciting, September 2013. So almost exactly 10 years ago, right? Uh, coming up our 10 year anniversary. And what we showed there was that this game was able to improve attention abilities in older adults outside of the game and had sustainability of effects. And we actually recorded brain activity before and after to show that the improvement was correlated with changes in the front part of our brain, the most evolved part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, and its connectivity with the rest of the brain. Amazing. And that was really you know, the landmark uh, publication and research that gave birth to a company that I co-founded called Achille, which then took the closed-loop design of that particular game and licensed it from my university, from University of California, San Francisco, and then over the last decade has developed a much better game, better art, music, story, interactivity, everything, but uses the exact same mechanics and closed loop design. So the same engine, just a way better delivery wrapper system. And then over the last decade, over cl probably close to two dozen studies have been performed, all replicating the original finding from the Nature paper. And I just want to pause on this because it goes back to a conversation about single test and multitasking. It's so interesting um, before, and then I'll, I'll get to the FDA right there. But basically what the finding that we keep replicating again and again, all sorts of different populations, kids, including kids with ADHD, adults with depression, uh, people with lupus, MS, on and on, same finding. Essentially what we found, and this was my original hypothesis, is that the game actually challenges you to multitask. Not because we want you to be a better multitasker, but because it is such a high level cognitive challenge for the brain, attentionally, to move your attention rapidly, to resist distractions, that if, we if the game is designed to push you to do that, with the goal that when you get out of the game and have to single task, you'll be better at it. In other words, we didn't change you. Your personality is no different like it is with many drugs, but we gave you access to resources that you now have attentional control that you could use to multitask, but you could also use it to single task. And our data shows that although the environment that we train you in is not single tasking at all, when we test you in the most with the most boring tests of single tasking, pretty much across the board, across all those populations, you're better. Mm -hmm. 
exactly the type of environment where kids with ADHD suffer the most. And so that's like the main scientific finding. And over the years, we've also showed that children, especially children and now adults, which just came out, and adolescents just came out just in the last several months, that not only are, is their attention better on the tests, which now we know very, very well, I feel very confident with that finding, but they notice the improvements in their daily activities. They notice they could focus better. They could manage their activities better. That is something I did not know to be true. And it didn't have to be true. You could have better tests objectively of attention, but not just notice it in your life. Yeah. Now, 70% of people, 70% of adults in our last study noticed that improvement. They see it in their performance. And so to bottle all of this up, all of this research and development and design was presented to the FDA as a medical device to treat inattention in children with ADHD as the first of its kind. It's called the de novo pathway. Very hard at the NIH to go, uh, at the FDA to go through these pathways as opposed to what's known as the predicate pathway. We just sort of like, here's a new type of antidepressant, basically the same as the last, slight modification. That's not what this is. This is like an entirely new category of medicine. So it takes a lot to go through the process, evaluation of both side effects and our efficacy on having meaningful change. And then right in during COVID, one of the big COVID uh, gifts for me and having a daughter was uh, approval by the FDA, first ever video game approved for any medical condition. And in this case, it was, it was a game Endeavor, we call it Endeavor RX, to treat inattention in children with ADHD. So super exciting after like hundreds of people involved in this decade, over a decade of effort. You are a historical figure, you know, it's so cool. Like I'm sitting here with like a Napoleon slash, you know, Let's William Wallace. So. Like, it has to is... get out there now and really reach its maximal, you know, potential, right? Yeah. Like I, I am, I'm so obviously pleased to hear you say that. And I want that to be true. I do. And even since I was a little kid, I wanted to do something important at that level, which few scientists get to do, no matter how smart or how much resources you have. It's like a convergence of a lot of things. And I feel like this is on that pathway. And it, and we hit milestones no, no one ever did before. And I'm super proud of that. But we're not fully there yet, right? We still have like a paradigm shift of people, doctors, insurance companies. Medicine is a pill. I'm like, no, no, no. Medicine could be more than that, right? It could be a video game. It could be an experience. And so, you know, there's work to do now to get it out there and to show its effects in bigger populations. And we, we just now moved from our prescription version for children to an over-the-counter version for adults. Just released, you get it without a prescription. We felt that that was a bottleneck that many adults didn't want. They were happy to recognize that ADHD. They didn't feel like they wanted to talk to a doctor about it, but they wanted to treat it. So we just put that out as an over-the-counter, like you might think of a Claritin over-the-counter. And so you can play the same game with the same mechanics, same closed loop as an adult. Our data shows that it's even more beneficial than it is for children. And so this is all the pathway now of taking something that we've done so much work on and going through the really challenging part of like getting it into people's lives. So yeah. that's the part now that we're up to. So where would people pick up that prescription or that over the counter? You could get the over the counter on the app store. So right now it's it's on the, so the prescription for children is available through your doctor. So Endeavor RX has tons of information, things you could print out, show your doctor, like here's a video game approved by the FDA to help treat what I have um, for parents that want options uh, for something different for their children. And for adults, you could just go on the app store, look for Endeavor OTC, 
We have a big website that tells all about the data. And we actually just released another feature that I've been waiting to drop uh, for a long time of a, a focus score that we showed um, is a metric from gameplay that correlates with our clinical outcomes. So you get that when you start playing, so you know where you are. It predicts where you're going to be in six weeks, and then you get updated on it. So that's something we didn't have when we first released, but I know people like to quantify things. They want to know how they're improving. So that's available on the App Store. It's uh, going to be coming to Android soon, but that's where it is right now. Amazing, amazing. We'll put everything in the show notes for folks as well to get access to and, you know, when you said earlier that this de novo pathway, it made me think about, you know, everything is relating and, you know, tying back to other aspects of health, like we've used many fitness examples, for, mm-hmm. ex- for example. Um, and for me, it's de novo lipogenesis, so the creation mm-hmm. of new fat. So mm-hmm. basically, this is a new channel that you went through with the FDA. Yes. That heretofore, especially when we're talking about something like uh, things that are kind of in a, in a way grandfathered in like mm-hmm. you know it's just a slight change like mm-hmm. this is a new thing a new channel so the ability to get this done is truly remarkable mm-hmm. because this the fda again it's like it's largely funded by pharmaceutical companies you know and some of this data has been out recently and i've been championing it because you know um we have a system right now that is so focused on the treatment of symptoms and not really looking at like, how can we make people better? How can we mm-hmm. create conditions to where we don't need these mm-hmm. things and creating this kind of revolving door or these kind of repeat customers or the farming of sick people. Yeah. And um, so with this being said, I'm curious, being that that has been the model for so long, and you said the key word earlier, you said medicine, mm-hmm. and it's only been a few decades just like our boom in technology, mm-hmm. that medicine has become isolated to this one thing, mm-hmm. right? And prior to that, even Hippocrates, he had mm-hmm. all of these different treatment mm-hmm. protocols. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the father of modern medicine, mm-hmm. but because, and this is just a big part of it, because of money, mm-hmm. it's really devolved to be this kind of isolated thing. Medicine is seen in this very vanilla, strange thing when even something like, if we're t- just talking about uh, lisinopril, mm-hmm. right? So for mm-hmm. treating hypertension. Mm-hmm. And here's a little fun fact. I haven't talked about this in a long time, but I went back and was like, because everything, even synthetic things, are coming from something here existing mm-hmm. on the planet. And I found that it was like some compounds found in snake venom mm-hmm. that were like isolated to create essentially this very small relaxation of your your blood flow, mm-hmm. right? Your cardiovascular system. I was like, oh, that's interesting, super fascinating stuff. But having this kind of blunt instrument, what are the side effects, mm-hmm. right? And so just to circle this back in, in my question, medicine is so much more because that's an isolated compound where we might have something like, and this is, I'm just throwing this out here, like, uh, you know, an avocado mm-hmm. that has thousands mm-hmm. of different chemicals, mm-hmm. thousands of different micronutrients, so many that we don't even understand yet or haven't like discovered. Mm-hmm. What is the effect of that system-wide versus mm-hmm. this thing that is maybe like one major compound and then like a dozen other things mm-hmm. to help your body to assimilate it, right? Mm-hmm. This food is acting as this change, biological change for your physiology, for your brain. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, it is, it mm-hmm. is, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. 
but we don't call that medicine. Mm -hmm. We call this thing medicine yeah. and miss out on the breadth of what medicine could be. Yeah, it's it. this is, we could go deep on this. It's something <laughs> I feel really strongly about. Um, you know, it's, it, if you just walk up to a random person and ask them what medicine is, if, if they say a, a pill, pills, that's like mind blowing, right? Like that's a major marketing that has created that impression. Uh, because it's a very, very limited view of medicine. And, you know, some of the challenges and, and, you know, having thought about this so deeply is how do I take this video game that I know works from the research that we've been doing and others have been doing and turn it into something that people just believe is medicine right across the board from the practitioners to the patients to the FDA to insurance companies is like a really fascinating challenge. Um, and you know, this word is used pretty freely, but in this case, it's really true. It's a, you know, it's a paradigm shift. Like, you know, we, we're, a paradigm creates a box around you that you almost can't see outside of it. You know, like the matrix, right? Like you don't know you're in it until you get out. And we're in a paradigm where we think medicine is just, you know, since we've been born, that's how it's been presented to us. And when I went to med medical school, it's like you either cut it or you take a pill, basically. And the idea that there's much more than that is, is, clear but challenging and so for this particular approach what i decided to do is just let's just play by whatever the rules are now right or wrong and treat it like it's a drug so we did double blind randomized multi-site placebo controlled trials of our video game like publishing you know lancet digital health and said look, this is no different than, than Adderall study. As a matter of fact, our first author has done many Adderall studies. And so we presented it to the FDA as like, how can you review this differently than a, than a drug? Because we just treated it like one. And it still took us years, but that was the strategy. I actually think that the whole model needs to change in addition to you know the successes we had with this particular it's not it's not reproducible just to keep doing these giant super expensive bricks and mortar trials every time you have a new experiential treatment but we did it that way because i felt that no one had done it before and it, it, it needed to cross the threshold by just playing by the current status quo um, and we were successful but it was really expensive and long and hard um, and, you know, one other interesting tidbit here is I, I frame this as experiential medicine, but I certainly did not create experiential medicine um, for the mind. I think, you know, maybe the first one approved by the FDA delivered through a video game. But experiential medicine is in many ways the oldest medicine for the mind. Things like meditation and mindfulness that has you know spanned the globe for thousands over a thousand years is experiences medicine, you know, used to release suffering in many, many ways. But the unique opportunity that I had and our company had and our lab has is that because technology can has such accessibility, unlike human delivered experiential medicines, like a meditation instructor or a therapist, and has the ability to be delivered reproducibly, you can do the same type of double blind trials that you can with a pill. Mm -hmm. And we figured out how to do that. And so you know, it's really hard to say, here's my meditation practice. I want it um, to be a medicine. And then the FDA would say, well, this is what our trials look like. Try to do that here. Really difficult. We were able to use technology. This is like, the, this is the move. We are able to use technology in such a way that we could mimic the status quo methodology that is accepted to approve drugs as medicine. 
which allowed us to become an experiential medicine approved by the FDA. That makes sense. <laughs> I almost want to stand up and cheer right now. This is that's incredible. Like that is so phenomenal, yeah, yeah, so phenomenal. <laughs> um, you know, I I think a much more advantageous view of medicine would be something that creates a therapeutic effect, mm-hmm. right? And with that being said, there's so many different things that can function as medicine and create, essentially, you know. And this is another thing I've been really working to impress upon culture for many mm-hmm. years is that. Your thoughts create chemistry in your body. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts alter what's happening in your physiology. Mm-hmm. And the person who introduced me or got me to like really kind of craft that awareness of that concept is a cell biologist. And the person who really impressed uh, epigenetics into the culture mm-hmm. decades ago mm-hmm. is this guy, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton. Mm-hmm. And what whenever I would talk to him about different things, like, you know, this potentially causing a disease, you know, he would always be like, Sean, no, 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 no. It's, it's the mind first. It's always the mind. And he, for him, and it took me a while to really accept it, that your mind is really the most powerful pharmacy in the universe, because it's not just like identical hormones, right? Bioidentical hormones you're taking. You're creating stuff for you, for your receptor sites, homegrown inside of your body. Yeah. Now, of course, we can come in with and bring other things in that can create therapeutic effects and be of benefit, but the most powerful pharmacy is within us. Yeah. And right. it's gonna be based on our perception. Our experiences yes. can really transform our health for the better or for the, the not so better. I mean, we speak the same language. I could not say that any better myself. I mean, one really good example of that is the placebo effect itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the example, right? Like, why is there a placebo effect? Even cancer treatments have placebo placebo effects. Placebo effect is the mind. It's expectations driving outcomes beyond the active ingredient. And it exists for everything. So, you know, the, the data is there. There have been thousands of studies that have proven crazy. this point. Thousands of studies. <laughs> thousands. The placebo, you have to account for it because people are going to have effects just based on the belief that they're taking 100%. something that has so a therapeutic that effect. That says a lot, you know, about the power of the mind. And, you know, it's something that we, it's troublesome to me that we have not been spending as much time and money in harnessing that as we have in trying to find this magic molecule to fix it. And, you know, it, I have thought about like how, this for so long. A lot of it is generated by money. Some of it is generated by the fact that people are lazy often, right? To be able to, and I get it, to be able to take a pill in the morning when you brush your teeth and depression's gone, like that sounds pretty appealing. Um, If it, you know, if it could happen, sure. But the reality is that when it comes to the brain and the mind, it's it's not going to be that easy. It's going to be work. And in some ways, that's like the good part of it. It's like, like our ADHD treatment, it's not a pill that you just take and forget about and you're better or worse from it you got to work like our game is hard you know it's a it's the ultimate personal trainer like those 25 minutes you are working and you know so but four weeks later when you're like oh i'm thinking differently i'm seeing differently i'm able to then you get both the benefit of being better but also the reward of knowing that you worked for that benefit so that's like the plus side of what experiential medicine is is that the downside is that it's not as convenient, and so it's it's going to not appeal to everyone, and I know that. Uh, but if it if you 
embrace it. And I'm not just talking about treatment, I'm talking in general. And not even I'm not even just talking about digital experiential medicine. I'm talking about taking up running or meditation or walks in nature. It could even be very passive. But if you commit to experiences as medicine and put the time and the work in, you get this double benefit. Yeah, this is so good. So I I know that we have some I think when I'm talking to you, so I could say this, the human brain is always automating things, right? It's always looking for ways to, to automate. Mm -hmm. And so that can bring about open room for laziness That's in a true. sense. And so I don't know if we're inherently lazy. I know, uh, you know, there are plenty of animals that take time off and roll around and just chill. And at the same time, I really believe it's our culture. Our culture is, is really, altered the way that we engage. I think that I think our ancestors, true. historically, we knew we had to move, we had to do things in order to get results. Yeah. Whereas today, because of changes in our culture, we have more and more access and, and, and really believe in this potential yeah. that I could do this thing and get these results. I can get rich by doing the lottery, right? Yeah. Like yeah. all I do is get this ticket and potentially I can become rich. Yeah. Or I can take this drug and potentially have the body of my dreams yeah. or you know fill in the blank whatever it is and so our culture has changed and kind of seduced us in a way that yeah. has made us more lazy and yeah. kind of open to that thing that pill for an ill or pill for a solution yeah. i think i agree with you i think that is a really astute perspective and um it takes intentions and focus to battle against that and you know I look at a lot of things differently now that I, I have have two kids for the first time in my life and, uh, you know, two young daughters. And I'm like, how do I raise them in such a way that their values are oriented to not wanting that easy way out, that quick, lazy fix, but knowing that real value in life usually comes from effort and that and that's OK. Um, but yeah, there's, a, the, you know, I think it extends across so many different domains, what you said and and we're paying a price for it. You know, we've been talking a lot about attention and our attention deficits, and we know that, but this it's so much bigger than that, I think, what's happening to the human mind. Um, I, I call it a cognition crisis to like extend it across the full range. And I actually even think of the challenges that we're facing now, not the least of which you were describing, is is beyond what we think of when we say there's a mental health crisis. I don't think that you need to have a clinical diagnosis of like major depression or anxiety disorder to be suffering uh, in what a healthy mind could and should be. So how we feel empathy for each other, how we make decisions, how we think in the future, it's suffering across the planet. And I think it's manifesting itself in ways that are very obvious just by reading the news every day. And so we have some serious work to do, I'd say, on the mind. Um, and I like, you know, for me, it feels good to return to, it's sort of a return. I, I use that word and sometimes I catch myself because like we're talking about a de novo treatment, but in many ways it feels like a return to valuing experiences as ways of improving ourselves. Yeah, and coupled with that, you've also been an advocate. And just again, it's, these, these things are very logical. But there are many different ways to create these therapeutic effects. Um, the innovation that you've brought to the market is incredible resource for everyone. And also just basic principles and things that mm -hmm. are involved in your life. You mm -hmm. know, you're, you're somebody who utilizes exercise. Mm -hmm. 
as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like some of the other things that can have a positive influence on our on our on our mind and our ability to focus. Yeah, happy to talk about that. It's it's really important um, for me to talk about it particularly because you know people get pigeonholed and. You know, I could easily become, oh, that's the video game ADHD guy. I have not that. I have more than that, um, not just in terms of what I do in my life, but in terms of my values. And, you know, these games that we're building, as, as excited as I am about them and their outcomes, they're meant to be very time-limited tools that you take to sort of refine your abilities. They're, they're not, that's why they, you know, you can't even play our game for more than 25 minutes a day. It will not allow you to. Not everyone's happy about that, but that's, that's the way it is. And we do not want you overdosing on our medicine. And, you know, so I, I am, I'm very pleased with what we did, but there's so many more important things that are imp that are critical to be healthy and comprehensive and, a, you know, a full human being. Again, I see this much more clearly now through thinking about my own uh, young family. Uh, you know, I would say physical fitness is sort of at the top of the list. We are meant to be creatures in motion. Um, our whole perception is driven by an interplay between how we perceive the world and how we act in the world. This perception action cycle is what our brain does. So you need to be moving in the world, not just classic physical fitness, which I could not say enough good things about pushing yourself both from a strength point of view and from an aerobic point of view, but even just being in motion. And, you know, again, we technology good and bad you could just sit there like this all day just moving your thumbs that is not good for you so being in motion challenging yourself physically really just right up there with challenging yourself cognitively not better or worse they're just twin towers um as we know there's a newfound uh awareness that many of us knew but maybe people are discovering for sleep and being able to get quality sleep I have a baby, I don't get quality sleep and I feel the difference, but uh, we know that it's not just ours and it's important and, and we really need to prioritize it for brain health, especially as we age. Um, stress is an interesting one that I like to think about. No stress is not good for the brain, right? Our brain, like all of our physical, like our whole physical body responds to pressure, right? You need to be pushing on something in order to maintain the health of the system. You know, it goes back to the plasticity. If you are completely complacent and completely at, you know, at relaxation always, you will not maintain the high level of functioning that you want. Too much stress, stress that is sort of chronic and helpless stress that you cannot get out of is super bad for our brain. So that's why stress is complicated. Like there's a middle ground where it's the right level that it's healthy. Um, and, you know, like most things, like, again, cuts both ways. Uh, so it's more nuanced than stress is good or bad. And then the last thing is what we put into our bodies, our nutrition, which, you know, I, I know speaks to you very, very closely. And, um, you know, how we uh, take in nutrients that benefit us, our whole body, our brain, is, is critical to become educated in and to value uh, because, again, we are not disconnected from our environment. That's like one of my most favorite messages that I don't usually get to talk to. But thinking about a human being as an island of I, of me, is it's an illusion. We do not exist like that. We are completely interwoven with nature and our environment in every way, from how we perceive the world to how we take in nutrients and 
that is like I think a big part of our survival on this planet is to embrace that uh, reality. Mm, so powerful. So you just really summarize how the issues today, it's not about the video games for our kids, for example. There are multiple studies indicating that this improves cognitive function. This improves other facets of people's lives as well. But when we have the video game coupled with Mountain Dew Red and Doritos, <laughs> yeah. coupled with 10 hours of sitting at a clip and then maybe get up to go piss and then another five hours. And I'm saying this from experience, all right? When I was in college, Sometimes my schedule will be based on how many hours I, of gaming I can get in before I had to be somewhere. I have done this too, All so right? <laughs> I get it. And so couple that with the sedentary behavior, yeah. couple that with the lack of social connection in the real world. Like this is where we see- Bringing lack of sleep. Right, of course. It's of all course, of it. that part. <laughs> and so, but what if we have these other ingredients plus utilizing technology in an efficacious way? Like we can really- do something special, you know? And so I'm so grateful for you and the work that you're Thank doing. You. Can you let people know where they can pick up your book, yeah. get more information and remind people where we, where they can get access to the game as yeah. well? So I have an aggregate website, which is my last name, gazali.com, G-A-Z-Z-A-L-E-Y.com. And on there, there's access to all of my you know companies that I founded, the video game, uh, a company, Achille, my book, my photography, um, all the things I do. Um, Achille, A-K-I-L-I is, is the name of the company. You can find it that way. Endeavor is the name of the game. Endeavor RX is the prescription version for kids. And Endeavor OTC is the game that's over the counter for adults. Amazing. Amazing. Again, thank you so much. This has been awesome hanging out with you. Thank, thank you for you. coming to hang out with us. I had a great time as well. Thank you. Awesome. Dr. Adam Ghazali, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I absolutely love this conversation. And if you did too, please share this out with your friends and family. Share it on social media, of course. Take a screenshot and tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram. And I'm at The Model Health Show on Facebook. And of course, you could just send this directly from the podcast app that you are listening on. Forward this to somebody that you love. Send them a text with some empowerment. I appreciate you so much for hanging out with me today. And we've got some incredible masterclasses and amazing guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you've got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.